Honestly, cool. not a lot happened in this episode. We can talk about that. Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week we're discussing the Star Trek Discovery winter premiere, All In. I just want to say it's summer here and it's hot, so this is terrible. Terribly exclusionary. <laughs> That's how it's described online, okay? Here in North America, where I guess it's made, it's winter. We have established that Paramount doesn't really understand that they have an audience in different countries. No. Very, very, very true. They do not understand that at all. Oh dear, poor, well, poor us, really. But we choose to be here. Let's talk about our giveaway and Captain Picard week. Yes, I just wanted to assure everyone that I have not forgotten about the giveaway and I, I do have a list of people that I will be contacting and maybe by the time this is out, I've already contacted you. How exciting! So I'm working on that and I do want to thank everybody who participated. And I have a full set of stickers ready to go and I will share the art, I guess, sometime in the next couple of days. And Captain Picard Week My favourite holiday. (laughs) It's based around Captain Picard Day, Mm -hmm. but the podcast Strange New Pod has organized this. It's a collective of various podcasts that are all going to be presenting topics and, uh, you know, their own show from February 24th through March 2nd. I believe those are the dates, Mm -hmm. and there's like 10 or 12 different podcasts. It's a a nice little group of people, and everything is related to Captain Picard in some way, but there's a a fun, you know, variety of different things that people are going to talk about that are like very serious, like his Borg trauma, all the way through what his costumes say about him which I'm super into (laughs) and our topic is that Captain Card is not as stuffy as his reputation. I fully intend to use the term Euro trash so if if you want a little prequel. (laughs) And in theory if they can give us a, a good slot we are going to be live for it. At least some of the podcasts will definitely be live Yes. And some will be pre-recorded. We are difficult because we, we're in two different hemispheres, but they're working with us and we're trying. Yes. At the very least, we could try to record our podcast over Zoom so there's video content. Though right. I mostly just crochet while I'm talking to you, so I don't know how exciting that is for anyone else. <laughs> At least one cat will definitely Zoom bomb on my end. Okay, that alone makes it worthwhile. <laughs> So look forward to that. I am. You know I love Picard as a character, and I get very defensive of him, even when he's being subjected to extremely reasonable and accurate criticisms. And, (laughs) of course, I don't think that the stuffiness criticism is accurate at all. So this is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Okay, welcome back to Star Trek Discovery. And halfway through this episode, my flatmate turned to me and she said, you know... I wasn't prepared for this level of hijinks. <laughs> it, it is a lot of hijinks. 
It was great. <laughs> it was it was really it was really funny how they really went for the let's go into the CD bar and have lots of crazy stuff going on. <laughs> it's interesting because it was such a dense episode in terms of dialogue and background detail and the literally crowded room. Yes. And so I was thinking, as I prepared for this episode, I don't know that much really happened in terms of advancing the plot, but for character development and filling in some finer details, it did a lot of work. I really enjoyed that. I felt it was very fun. Yes. At a time, like, if you look at the plot as a line, mm. <laughs> it shouldn't be fun right now. <laughs> this, this is not fun. And yet... This episode was a lot of fun. I definitely expected an episode where Michael would be sad because Book has betrayed her and everything is very doom and gloom and serious. And as you say, this was fun and it didn't feel... It was unexpected, but it wasn't jarring. And you mentioned the crowded room. The episode before the hiatus was mm. the one where they had the giant room, the Federation cavern of the the different dignitaries on the different levels. Yes. And everything in the Federation and Starfleet, Starbase, is very spread out. It's very wide. Socially distanced. <laughs> and this tiny little casino area was the opposite of that. It was very cramped. It was very dark. There were all of these hidden corners mm. and there are just people, you know, shoving elbows at all times. And it was more than one room. There were different little places, but all of the rooms blended in this little like pod kind of configuration so that it all seemed to be the same tiny room but it was spread out into different ones it was literally the the inverse of that federation senate type area and that was fun too just having crowds alone pressing in on each other made it feel lawless compared to dangerous yes and that's such a 2022 feeling and i think it was a great detail for the contemporary audience. I, I don't doubt for a moment that, you know, COVID protocols were followed and respected and maybe some of those crowds were comped in later, but the feeling of being surrounded by people who may not wish you harm, but also don't wish you well, I think was really well conveyed. But let's backtrack a little and go to the beginning of the episode where it started right after the end of the last one with... Mm. Book and Tarka zooming out. Vengeance road trip. <laughs> Vengeance road trip. And President Rulik having a bad day <laughs> Again. about it. Yes. Everybody was having a bad day. President Rulik was having a bad day. Admiral Vance was having a bad day. And Captain Michael was having a bad day. <laughs> Every day is a new crisis, as your note says. Yes. Which is also very 2022, i got to say. My week has been... Not a crisis, but a disruption every single day. Mm. And it turns out it's not just me, because I complained about it to a few different people, and they said, yeah, same. As we are in this sort of transition period between mask mandates and 
high numbers and testing weekly into we're going to try to relax some things. You know, regardless of if that's a good idea or not, we're doing it. And so it really feels like this jumbled up, you know, there's all of these emotions that everybody is dealing with, whether it's excitement or fear. And it's creating all these little tiny problems. Everything is a level harder than it should be. Exactly. Yeah. I sprained my ankle on Wednesday. I went out on my lunch break to buy sushi. I slipped over. I sprained it very badly. But then when I was at the hospital, hanging around an emergency room during a pandemic is not much fun. Because, like, I was in and out within a couple of hours, which I did not expect. But they were like, this one's simple. We can deal with her and get rid of her really fast. But, like... (laughs) There were a dozen ambulances queuing up outside waiting for their patients to be admitted. There were people who'd had serious workplace injuries coming through. It was really stressful and, you know, everyone has to wear their N95 and that makes communicating harder. Everything was a level of difficulty, higher than it would normally be. Right. So I'm annoyed that the hospital just released me without a bandage or even an ice pack, but I get it. (laughs) (laughs) that level of oh god everything is something new everything is a challenge and everything is harder than I'm used to it being I I just think there have been points in season four where I've been a bit critical of how overtly discovery has addressed the current state of the world but Mm -hmm. this worked for me I uh, related to Dr. Culver, let's say. Oh, my goodness, yes. (laughs) Because I, too, am just over the droids trying to help me out and all of the responsibilities that I take on myself, just like him. You know, it's like I can't be angry at the fact that I volunteered to do these things. And And yet... (laughs) I am spread very thin. Yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. And so when something small, and obviously book absconding with Tarka and the drive is not small, but when something that is out of your control, that you have no control over it, that you did not expect, and is not, like, he couldn't actually have stopped him if he was involved in it. If that, no, like, no. That's magical thinking on Dr. Culver's part. But I understand that wish that you could control something. Yes, and it's also a problem that Hugh thought he had squared away. It was an ongoing issue, but there was a solution and they were working towards dealing with it. And mm-hmm. it turns out that he completely misread the situation. And of course, what we know is that this was a fairly impulsive act on Book's behalf and he wasn't planning it all along. But Hugh and Rillick and Vance and Michael don't Mm -hmm. know that for sure. I think Michael strongly suspects, but only Book and Tarka know that. Right. And there's the whole Tarka of it all. He definitely targeted Book because he needed Book in order to use his drive. Like, he needed Either Book or Stamets. These are the two people that I can get to do this with. And Stamets wouldn't have fallen for that. 
Right. And a book is not in his right frame of mind. Like, he's just not. He's not going to be for a little while. No, and yet he has the maturity to understand that there will be consequences for his actions. And, yeah, he might go to prison or whatever the Federation does. We've had that discussion. He might (laughs) see the end of his relationship with Michael and he accepts those consequences. Whereas Ruon Taka, the ultimate white man, is... Still going around assuming that he can talk his way out of everything. He is a very punchable face. I do also want to mention Admiral Vance and his decision to throw caution to the wind and send Michael on her little mission anyway. Yes. Which is, to be honest, very Star Trek of him, very Starfleet of him. That's how we do things here. The usual suspects were complaining about Michael once again disobeying orders and people were like, bro, she was literally like given conflicting orders and told to figure it out. Like, yeah, dude. <laughs> but the way that his voice broke on, mm. you know, I just got my family back. I don't want to send them away again. It reminded me of in season two when Sarek's voice broke when he talked about losing both of his children. Yes. I I love these stoic characters (laughs) showing their emotions in that tiny way. Strong dad feels. Strong dad feels, yes. My heart went out to Admiral Vance. Mm. You know, we were introduced to Admiral Cornwell as an admiral and then layers started getting peeled back until we get to Leith, where she is very vulnerable on several levels. And Vance has not had that vulnerability mm. revealed. And so his need to protect his family and his desire to see them versus his fear that they will be harmed if they stay close to him, I think is is a step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Which, as a person who I guess is maybe admiral sexual, I'm in favour of. <laughs> admiral sexual. Look, I don't know what else you call Look, he's very attractive. Only 20% of Starfleet admirals are evil. <laughs> Alright, so now we can get back to the hijinks. Hijinks! <laughs> I... I... I really like that Vance has been watching Rillick work and how she deals with Michael and going, okay, okay, I can do that too. Honey, I don't actually know that you can, but that's a problem for you and Rillick. <laughs> he was just like, I'm going to follow her lead. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm going to give you conflicting orders. Yeah. And yeah. expect you to, to run with it and <laughs> solve all my problems for me. But Michael's good at that. That's Michael's superpower, so... You have your Swiss Army nice of an officer. You, you use her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed the design of the Karma Barge, both exterior and interior. The the sea monster design or hologram was very, very cool and mm-hmm. a sign of how advanced technology is in this era, even if some aspects have stagnated. But also we rarely get to see oceans in Star Trek, and I'm always in favour of an ocean. I agree. Yes. Because it was literally a barge. It was different in design and setting to, for example, your Mos Eisley Cantina or mm. Quarks or any dodgy bar slash gambling place you, you see in science fiction. Obviously, what we actually got was a set and a series of small rooms, as you said, but knowing the exterior is, is 
literally a, a vessel on water, I think made a difference mm. to me. I can see that. Not enough boats in Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Not enough boats in, in space. I'm going to go with, as you're mentioning other franchises, it's not something that we see often enough, I feel. Yeah. And, yeah, it was cool. And I'm always keen to see more of Michael's courier life. We got a, a good glimpse of that in the teaser for the season four premiere. And what we see here is perfectly consistent with that, except now she is not on Bookside. I have to shout out Sonequa Martin-Green for being amazing, as always. As always. But the layers of Michael that were on display in this episode, there were at least three different Michaels on view. And she went through them seamlessly. Yes. And it was really just a absolutely impressive performance in an episode that didn't need an impressive performance. <laughs> there are some episodes uh, where, I don't want to say that they can lay back and not do the acting, that's not what I mean, but there are easier episodes and these kinds mm -hmm. of hijinks heavy, fun ones with a little mystery and a little poker, you don't have to pull out all the stops for them, but she does. I want to suggest that Sonequa, like Michael, doesn't know how to half-ass anything. Mm. I've obviously not seen all of her work, but even when she was very, very young in The Good Wife, she was always very present in her scenes. Right. In a role that requires you to be in the background. It's not that she was mugging for the camera in any way, but she's always awake behind her eyes. And that's why, the, I mean, okay, so not to describe The Good Wife from many years ago, mm -hmm. but she's introduced as the assistant of one character of opposing counsel. And by the end of the episode, they steal her to work for Alicia. And so it, it is actually important for her to be prominently in the background in that role. Sonequa is always great. Always great, and I just really liked, particularly in the poker scene and in the scene right before the poker scene where she's looking at the, whatever it's called, the salt rock. Yes. And my note here is that Michael is not a, as good an actor as Sinequa is. And what I mean by that is that you can tell when Michael is putting on a show for the other people in the room and yeah. she does it in in the poker game she does it with Awoshakun's hustle there's michael is reacting on a level of normal regular reactions and there is michael is putting on a show and heightening her reactions for a purpose yes. and there were these very subtle switches between the two in those scenes and it was just super impressive and I love the fact that I could tell when Michael was acting but it wasn't like Sinequa acting badly it was just interesting I was just a master class of micro acting that I am very impressed with you could compare it with Michael being drugged in the season three premiere where that is all Michael and it's completely sincere and 
when Michael is putting on a performance, there is a level of discomfort. She is stepping out of her comfort zone and putting on another mm. persona that doesn't quite fit. And it's so yes. subtle. I talk a lot about Jason Isaacs as Lorca doing five different things at once, but I think by this point in the series, Sonequa is routinely doing three or four different things at once, and it's kind of amazing. Yes. So it, it was really, really fun to watch, and I just am amazed with her all the time. You know, people complain about Michael crying too much, which is nonsense, but... Mm-hmm. This is the same, like, it's, again, it's not that it's easier to cry, but it is easier for the audience to connect with that emotion because it's more of a display. It's more of of a performance. And this episode, it seems uh, almost weightless. It's like this really incredible performance of humor and pathos and mischief but there's also the underlying you know she's losing the person that's so important to her and she's torn between her loyalties and her desires there's this tension that underlies everything and Sonequa never forgets that and that subtle sadness is just as powerful to me as when mm. she's crying, I guess is where I was going with that. While we're on the subject of Sonequa, there is this idea that I've been seeing, and I first saw it pop up after Tilly left, but it seems to have ramped up now that Discovery has been renewed for a fifth season and is absolutely not the failure that some fans were hoping for. This idea that Sonequa is this terrible diva who bullies the other women on the cast and had Mary Wiseman fired. And this week it was someone in the Trek movie comments saying that obviously Owo had her moment because Sonequa didn't want to do stunts. And I don't think this is a widespread idea, but I think people should be aware of it and quash it when they see it because Sonequa is famously professional and gracious to her co-stars and none of this is coming from even the most disreputable celebrity gossip sites this is purely people in the comments on star trek news sites making stuff up making stuff up i just think it's straight up misogynoir it it definitely is and these are the same people who would defend william shatner (laughs) absolutely for the same behavior that they're making up (laughs) that sonequa's not even doing yeah. And yeah. I mean, I remember, if, if I recall correctly, she had people over to her house for barbecues in the first season. Like, she's the mom of the cast. She pulls everybody together and makes sure that everybody's doing well. And I know Mary Chifo and Jane Brooke both talked about how when they shot their final scenes for Discovery's season two finale, that was 3 a.m. and Sonequa was there because she felt she owed them the respect of seeing these recurring guest stars do their final scenes. She did not have to be there at three. No, no one should have been there at three in the morning. (laughs) But Sonequa as the lead actor and a mother of a young child, especially. And so I just think this is a level of disrespect and a level of racism and misogyny that... And that that comment that you said about a Wushikun and stunts... Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to say this other than 
just because they're both black women doesn't mean that they have the same role. They're not interchangeable. What are they talking about? <laughs> I don't like we we wanted to put Sonequa in this scene, but we couldn't, and so we like that is really just blatant racism. It they're, is... they're saying that they're the same yeah. that they that it doesn't matter which one does it. Like what? Well, I kind of feel like this branch of fandom has been treating Owashikun and Michael as interchangeable since season one, because I definitely remember a lot of, I don't hate black women, I just think the show would just be much better if Owashikun was the lead, because she doesn't talk. (laughs) So, yeah, I just want to flag this. I think it's very ugly and I would not like to see it spread. I realise that by discussing it, I am, in a sense, drawing attention to it. So let's move on and talk about Awashikun. <laughs> and how amazing she is. A few weeks ago, we were like, how dare they touch our lovely Awashikun with their terrible bridge crew soliloquies. And this episode follows up on that and does it in a really natural way. I am shocked. This, this is how you characterise the bridge crew. I, I am shocked that her moment with Saru had a purpose beyond that. I am amazed. It's sad, because, mm. but I would never have expected that from Discovery. No, no. <laughs> from this season in particular. I mean, bless, it's trying, but yeah. I'm just so pleased, and... Everything about Awashikun now feels like it's really consistent. She grew up in a subculture with minimal technology. She lost people because of that. And now she is pathologically determined to help others, but in a completely different way to Michael. They have a similar problem in that they both take responsibility for things beyond their control, but they're processing it in different ways. And I respect that. I think that's a great piece of writing. And again, Michael and Joanne are not interchangeable. I loved, obviously, her whole hustle was great. Yes. And even though I think we figured it out early on, it was fun to watch it all go down. It was fun for her to to do that heel turn and be like, ah, I'm going to get you now. It's always fun to see a con play out. Yes. And then she had that scene with Tarka that was a completely different tone, but sort of the same drive. And comes from the same place. Because here Tarka is white mansplaining about how he is the only person in the entire universe who has ever experienced loss. And Awashikun doesn't need to explain what she has been through. She doesn't need to deliver that soliloquy again. But it's all in her face. And in the way she quietly dismisses him. This is an outstanding episode for Oyin Olajeo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I should look it up. But I love her work. And I am sending extremely strong vibes to CBS to cast her as Lex's sister in Good Mm -hmm. Sam. Give her more things. Wait, wait, wait. Is Good Sam, can we count that as part of the Good Wife, Good Place, Good Fight (laughs) cinematic universe? I am very willing to. 
Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> I can write that crossover. Easy. <laughs> anyway, I really enjoyed the work and the fantastic characterization for Owo. I just want to flag how troubled I am that it seems that the uniforms involve some sort of sleeveless jumpsuit underneath their baggy jackets. You were traumatized by this. Just <laughs> bathroom breaks must be so unnecessarily complicated. It's the same as the next gen uniforms. Those were or also even bad. The Voyager uniforms. I hate those too. <laughs> That's what Starfleet does. <sighs> this is why Starfleet needs to reconsider its choices. I know I that. I don't think this is why. I think there are a lot of. <laughs> No, no, I think this is why. I think this is their big problem. I, I know that the current uniforms are much more comfortable and easy for the actors to wear than their old blue ones, and I'm really pleased about that. I don't want the actors to be suffering to squeeze themselves into very tight uniforms, which have to have the jacket zipped to the pants so they don't ride up when you sit down. And yet... For me, it was this nice callback to... Ensign Roe, my favorite episode of The Next Generation. <laughs> and Roe's when... magic jacket. Yes, <laughs> Roe's magic jacket. I love everything about that episode. You know, Ensign Roe, Roe Laren is my favorite TNG character. Mm -hmm. But that moment in the camp with the little girl where she takes off her Starfleet top and gives it to her, and I'm just like, that, that, that doesn't happen that way. That, there was never any hint that those tops could do that. And so I just love it. I love it. And I felt the same way. These are much more, I, I understand exactly how it works. Mm. With these uniforms, they not, are not as impossible and structured and uncomfortable <laughs> as the next generation ones. But it was still that fun moment of, I like that Starfleet has not gotten over their ridiculous fashion <laughs> decisions that have been around from the beginning. <laughs> yes. I will say I liked the jumpsuit itself and the yellow shoulders to indicate division. Just the jacket. Mm. Once I started thinking about the jacket, I got concerned. But yes, the, the jumpsuit itself was fine. I liked it. Whatever. Oh, it just looked really, really good in that, you know, she looks triumphant. Yes. So but because it's the Olympics, yes, which I haven't really been watching mm -hmm. but it is the olympics and so it's on my mind with the piping for the division and everything it really felt like a sports uniform that's what i got out of this whole scene and obviously she was doing sport so it makes sense but it was still a starfleet uniform so it was sort of like it was still a america or australia or whatever uniform and i liked that part of it too mm -hmm. i liked the athletic nods in fact, it looks like a more comfortable version of the grey onesie that Tuvok and his team of reluctant Marquis boot yes. camp kids wear in the fairly terrible Voyager first season finale, which is mostly notable for Get This Cheese to Sick Bay, but also it for having the. Could have been good. 
I, so much of Voyager could have been good. <laughs> it could have been a really good episode. That sort of 90s Starfleet athletic gear looked very uncomfortable, whereas mm-hmm. this was built on similar lines, but it all looks like stuff that you can move in, which is what the actors are saying about these costumes. So then we have the big reveal. The DNA is a blob. <laughs> I loved the way that she said that word, that line. She was like, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but I'm also the president and I have confidence, so I'm going to say it and someone is going to explain it to me. <laughs> Again, it was a nice little detail. I think it was USS Jellyfish in the Cornwell Discord mm-hmm. who pointed out what a great bit of characterization that was for Rillick in that she's not a scientist and she has this blue-collar freighter captain background and she's from outside Starfleet. So, yeah, she needs to have this stuff explained to her, but also she's not asking for the explanation in a, oh, ha, ha, give it to us in English, kids. She requests the explanation in a way that still shows respect for the expertise she doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And she trusts that they will tell her. Yes. Like, she, she doesn't have any expectation that they're going to be condescending either. You yes. You know, it's like, we are equals, you just have more information than me. Obviously, I've been Team Relic since the beginning, but I think this is a really good depiction of a president, especially in 2022, where people have issues with expertise and scientists telling us what to do and all of that, to have a presidential figure who shows respect but also acknowledges her ignorance. I think it's just really valuable and it makes me like her even more. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. But what we learn is that it is not a weapon. It's, they call it mining equipment. (laughs) I'm picturing like those deep sea oil mining rigs that can... Yes. Yeah. Up anchor and be moved to another part of the ocean. And how do the fish feel about that? It was a uh, big Star Trek reveal in that it was like, we are going to now bang you over the head with our morals and explain to you that what we are talking about in this story is the damage that people who, you know, I'm extrapolating, but what if these are just explorers Mm. who are just out there exploring and they need, I, I can't, say any of the words. So I'm going to call it Trillium. They need Trillium (laughs) to go. And so they go find some, just like you said, with the deep sea rig that goes down and rips oil out of the ground. And they don't think about what might be there with the Trillium or what else needs the Trillium. It feels like an interesting companion to the whole Dilithium thing. You know, last season we had the dilithium shortage, and even now it's still a finite resource and the Federation Mm -hmm. is too dependent on it. And Mm -hmm. here is the flip side of that, the damage of unrestrained mining on the people whose territory is being mined. This is a big issue in Australia because we have a lot of natural mineral resources and quite a lot of them are on traditional Indigenous lands. So there was an incident a couple of years ago where a thousands-year-old 
sacred place, a place with a lot of significant rock art, was destroyed by a mining company. There's a lot of grief and anger about that, and this really resonated. Right. But also, this is not an observation that I was capable of making myself, but some nerds pointed out that the trillium or whatever the mineral that the DMA is extracting... <laughs> whatever it actually... Maybe yeah. boromite? Boronite? Either way, it is apparently a key ingredient in the omega molecule. Yes. Which... Okay, so fun story about me... First, should we explain to the people who have not obsessively watched Voyager what okay. Omega is? Basically, <laughs> it's a superpower molecule. It's powerful but dangerous. The Federation banned any knowledge, it's like nuclear any research. power. Yeah, the Federation <laughs> let's, banned let's, research let's into it. The Borg worship it as perfection. It's a round, glowy blue thing. There's a whole episode of Voyager about it called the Omega Directive, and that's actually all I can remember. Seven, because the Borg think it's a perfect particle, she sort of has this religious reaction to it. Yes. It's about Seven coming to her own spirituality in a very science fiction way. The actual, like, the Omega particle is this little sphere thing with lots of little things that stick out, kind of like a molecule. Have you ever seen molecular biology, which... I see every day, so. <laughs> but it, there's little spikes coming out of a round orb in the middle. And it's a toy. Like Legos or Constructs or Roblox, but they're all already together. I'll put a, a picture online for everybody. I'm looking it up. I really, really wanted one. <laughs> Because as we know, I love Seven of Nine, and Seven of Nine is very important to me. Particularly when Voyager was on, I was at the right age to be sort of like, if Seven does it, I also have to do it. And so Seven found her spirituality in this joy, <laughs> and therefore I needed one so that yes. I could also. To this day, when people ask me about, you know, what religion... I atone to or whatever, you know, filling out a survey or something like, what's your religion? And I don't really answer those questions, but I think about that stupid Borg glow-in-the-dark third grader toy that represented something to me. It represented this idea of connectedness and faith. And also, you are the last person in the world who would ever give her religion on the census as Jedi. That's right. I, I am the anti-Jedi. Ah, but not in a Sith way. <laughs> no, not in a Sith way, because the Sith and the Jedi are two sides, but not really. Whereas the Omega Molecule is a circle. That's right. <laughs> the Omega Molecule is a constructs toy that glows in the dark and I appreciate props <laughs> and I appreciate finding you know if I do have a religion it is the type that is to be fair very Jedi in that it's finding spirituality and balance in ordinary objects much like how book can make connections with people and animals. 
Because I think that being a mining rig doesn't exclude the possibility that Greg is still an entity. Oh. And either way, I think Book is going to be the one to make first contact with the miners. Like, the Omega Molecule stuff is cool. I like that as a little bit of world building. And... It, it's mildly interesting. I'm actually a bit more excited that the Devore from the Voyager episode Counterpoint got a shout out. But <laughs> what I'm really interested in is what kind of culture we're going to encounter and how this will go for Book and Michael. I'm worried about Book and Michael. I have seen enough Star Trek mm. that Book is not going to come out of this on the side of evil absolutely i i absolutely agree that he is going to be the one to have first contact and to have a connection with these people Mm. and relic's gonna forgive him because he does whatever to get them on our side (laughs) or maybe she won't and maybe this will be like cassidy and cisco and he spends six months in a cushy Federation jail, which, as we know from Garrick, is the standard punishment for attempted genocide. And then he comes back and it's awkward for a day and then they resume their relationship. <laughs> Man. I just want to point out that Cassidy did not do a genocide. No, Cassidy was smuggling medical supplies and the Federation justice system hates black women. I trust that people have watched Deep Space Nine, but just for the few people who haven't, I just wanted to make sure that you were throwing shade at Garrick, not oh, Cassidy. Really, I'm throwing shade at the racism inherent in the Federation's justice system. But yes, Cassidy did nothing wrong, for the record. Cassidy did nothing wrong. Yeah. Gun Golduka did everything wrong. Uh, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I really hope that this doesn't see the end of their relationship. I feel like this is a challenge for them, but they will come out of it stronger. And, you know, maybe the resolution of this is that they decide that having Book living on Michael's ship is too much and he should stay at home on Vulcan and raise their kids. Navar. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry to dead name Navar. My apologies. By the end of this episode, I just want to say, and obviously people who think that Discovery is not Star Trek are not listening to our podcast, but this was the most Star Trek-y Star Trek that ever Star trek <laughs> This particular episode had so many nods to old school Mm. Star Trek that their argument which was never good and it was also never put forth in good faith No, but it has also been obliterated (laughs) by now there's just been enough discovery being super duper Star Trek-y that it's just it's done and I no longer even want us to entertain it's a silly argument. We should not indulge it. 
I felt like there were almost too many references in the dialogue, but they all came from the one character. So I'm just going to assume that he is the kind of nerd who spends all his time on Memory Alpha or Space Wikipedia or whatever, and actually no one knows what he's talking about. What really excited me was the presence of the Changeling, because in however many hundreds of years they've gone from being fascist blobs to con artists and I have to say it's an improvement and I like to believe that this changeling was Odo and he just really really misses Quark Aww. he is determined to be a person that Quark would be proud of which is <laughs> terrible but an improvement <laughs> no one should want that no it was good, if, you know, again, it's like bringing in some Deep Space Nine <laughs> for people who think there isn't enough. I like the shout outs to these races to say, like, time has passed and they're in a different place. It's fun to see how everything is wider and bigger and people are, are doing different things, but are, it's also all the same. Yeah. And there's, of course, external reasons for that. We haven't actually skipped forward a thousand years. Sometimes and, I forget and that. We, we are in 2022. We were never in the 24th century. Yeah. It's a show that's made on Earth in America by people who grew up with it. But I also think that there is some truth to it as well because it's a lot harder to make changes and to make progress you don't notice it while it's happening. You only notice it when you look backwards. Right. And a thousand years ago, no one would have been joking about Klingons at the disco or Cardassians who love cake. <laughs> right. It was great to see the changeling. Michael and Book working together twice, you know, despite being at odds. It was great. That's how you know they're going to make it. That they can put their differences right. aside to collaborate on a bit of a heist. And Haas, I think that was his name, right? Haas? Yeah, yeah. Haas being, like, a shipper. <laughs> because they were not a couple when they no. were couriers together. And yet he was like, you guys are, have always been a couple and you're a couple and you're going to be a couple. It's going to be okay. And that was fun, too. I just hope he's right. My last remark, actually, is about Haas's makeup. I thought the design was a bit Babylon 5, a bit Buffy. You know, we've seen that sort of alien or entity before. But then there was a close-up on his face, and I found myself thinking, gosh, his skin is just amazing. It looks so soft. And then I remembered, that's not skin, that's a silicon mask. And that is when I became impressed with the makeup. Mm-hmm, Yeah. I forget that, for example, Doug Jones does not look like Saru. Does not look like that, yeah. It's incredible how much prosthetics have come. Absolutely. Amazing. Really justifies HDTV. <laughs> Almost more than any amount of giant space battles. Anyway, let's wrap up. I can go back to thinking about terrible jumpsuits. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, all at Antimatter Pod. 
and you can write to us at mail at answermanapod.com. If you'd like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And tell your friends. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the next episode of Star Trek Discovery. No title? No title. I, I looked and looked. I couldn't find one. It was just episode nine. Oh, well, we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs>